Well, good morning to everyone over in Quakertown. I miss you guys a ton. I hope you're doing well over there. I hope Wayne is treating you well. Uh, if you didn't come last week, uh, you missed some awesome dance moves by Wayne. Uh, and so maybe he'll show you those today, so if you ask nicely. Uh, in fact, we're going to start calling him Twinkle Toes from now on. Uh, so please, all of you in Quakertown, please call Wayne Twinkle Toes all day long. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you don't know what I'm talking about here in Southerton, last week we had a promo for Marshmallow Mayhem, one of our big middle school events and we're really excited about. And so there was a dancing marshmallow costume guy, well, Wayne, our worship leader and pastor, decided to dance over there in Quakertown as well. And apparently Wayne has some serious moves. So if you didn't see it, go onto our Instagram page and check it out. It's amazing. Once again, we want to welcome everyone who is live streaming on the app as well. Uh, we're really excited about the app and how this can continue to allow us to further God's kingdom and to further expand our reach with the gospel. In fact, uh, today, Charles is not here. Charles is our teaching pastor normally. He's our regular teaching pastor. He's actually at the University of Illinois, and he's been there this week teaching and speaking to some of the students over there as we continue to advance the gospel and as we continue to advance God's kingdom. And so usually, since he's not here today, this would be great. I'd be scot-free because Charles supervises me when it comes to preaching. And usually if he's not here, it's, I could do whatever I want to do. Like, it's wonderful. It's freeing. It's beautiful. But we have an app <laughs> that he can live stream on. So I'm sure I'm going to get text in the middle of my message with some sort of critique and like do this this way and whatever. So here's what I have to say to you, Charles. <laughs> Bring me back a souvenir. That's all you need to worry about. Well, we're in the middle of a series that we're calling For Everyone, and in this series, we're taking a look at the book of Romans. And what we need to remember about Romans is this. Romans is just a letter. It was written by a man named Paul. And Paul wrote a lot of letters, and we took some of those letters, and we put them into the Bible as books of the Bible. But what we need to remember is that Romans and the other books of the Bible are real letters that were written by a real person to real people. And when Paul wrote this letter to Romans, he was writing to a group that was divided. They couldn't agree on anything. They were uh, disagreeing on what they believed. They were disagreeing on how they act. They were disagreeing on how they should behave. They were, they were just not agreeing. And so Paul writes this letter, and he begins to explain what is most important. And what we have in the book of Romans is probably one of the deepest and richest explanation of the gospel that Paul provides. And the gospel simply means good news. And what we've said in this series is that the good news, what we need to remember about the good news, is that this good news is not primarily about us. We tend to want to make the gospel about us, but the good news is about Jesus. It's that we now have a king. This is the good news about God's kingdom. And what we want you to know is that while it's not about us, it's for us. In fact, it's for everyone. And we see that right up front. This gospel is good news for everyone. We read that in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. This good news is for everyone. That's the good news. But what we've said so far in this series, what we've said leading up to today is that in order to understand the good news, you need to understand the bad news. 
You can't fully understand the good news if you don't understand the bad news. And so we've spent the first three chapters of Romans, we spent the past few weeks looking at the first three chapters of Romans and understanding the bad news. And the bad news can be summed up in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. It says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is some bad news. And what we learned last week is that Charles said that everyone is under the same verdict, guilty and condemned. Guilty and condemned. And we, we've spent all of this as we look at the beginning of, of Romans, as we're going forward in the beginning of Romans, we get all of this, that you're guilty and condemned. There's all of this stuff, there's all of this messed up, screwed up stuff that we have to address. And we get to this point finding, this is some pretty bad news. And then we get to verse 21 in, in chapter 3 and whew, everything is flipped. Because what we see is, but then, but then. And when that but then happens, a big turn of events occurs. And righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who would believe. And what Charles said last week is that we need to stop working on our resume of performance. We need to stop working on this resume of all the good things that we could possibly do. Of all the good things that we have done. And we need to exchange it for the gift that Jesus offers us, the gift of righteousness that only comes through Jesus. And what he said last week is that that's what happens in the process of justification. That in the process of justification, we give Jesus our resume of condemnation and we accept Jesus' resume of commendation. We give Jesus our resume of all of this messed up stuff, all of our garbage, all of our filth. We give it to him. Jesus takes it and he gives us his resume in return. And this process only occurs through faith in Jesus, which leads us to today. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 3. If you don't know how to use the Bible, if you don't know where the book of Romans is, there's a table of contents in the beginning of the Bible that you can look up where Romans is. If you don't have a Bible... There are different ways to follow along. You can read on the screens. You can take out your phone or your tablet out and go to the Bible app or the Bible Gateway app. Both are great apps for reading the Bible. Or you can read one of the Bibles we have here at Calvary Church. In Southerton, they're in the seat racks in front of you. In Quakertown, they're in the back of the room on some carts. If you didn't grab one in Quakertown, just raise your hand and usher will come over to you and bring one. Or you can just, just get up and go and get one. It's a fine. And whether you're in Quakertown or Southerton, if you don't own a Bible, we want you to take that one home. It's our gift to you. It's free. We believe that reading the Bible has the potential to impact your life. And so we want you to have a Bible. And if you've never read one, give us a call. We'd be more than happy to help you with that. But we're going to be reading from Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Actually, Romans chapter 3, I apologize. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? 
Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. There's actually a lot in these verses, and there's a lot. We're not going to be able to discuss all of them in one day. And so we're just going to kind of pick a little bit from them. And what I want you to understand is that one of the things that I want you to understand when you read these passages, when you read this, these verses, these sentences, is that these sentences describe the nature of God. And what we learn about the nature of God is this. God is righteous. He's righteous. God is right. Everything is right about God. There is nothing wrong about him. There is nothing wrong in him. God is completely perfect. He is completely right. God is righteous. His very nature is righteous. But we are not. Just earlier we read, there is no one righteous, not one. God is righteous, that is his nature, and we are not. And that's where the problem arises. That's where the problem arises, because God is completely right. He cannot simply ignore the fact that we are not. God has to address sin. God has to address the fact that we are not righteous. Because he is a holy God, he cannot simply ignore the fact that we are not righteous. It is against his nature to do so. And the only response that a holy God can have to our unrighteousness is this. Wrath. An anger, a deep anger towards sin. And we hear that word wrath and it rubs us the wrong way. We hear that word wrath, and it's kind of like, that's, that's old school church. We don't talk that way anymore. We just talk grace, grace, grace. You can't understand grace if you don't understand wrath. We talk through God's wrath, and, and we look at it, and we're like, that seems a little bit extreme, don't you think? I mean, I, mean, I can understand God's wrath, if it was towards, like, those really big sins, you know, like, I mean, those horrific sins, those things like serial killers or whatever, I mean, I don't know, those are big sins. But I'm basically a good person. I mean, we're all basically good people. And then we kind of create this kind of thing, like, th that, that wrath doesn't make sense. And the reason that we create that is because we come up with this hierarchical system for sin, and we assign worth to sin, and we assign value to sin based on how it impacts us or how it impacts others. I mean, think about it. The way you react to whether something's wrong or whether something's bad or whether something's evil is based on how it impacts you or how it impacts others. That's the wrong way to look at sin. That will lead us to not understand God's wrath. We have to look at sin differently in order to understand what it really is, in order to understand why a holy God, a righteous God, can only respond this way of an anger towards sin. There's a preacher who's written many books. His name is John Piper. 
And Piper had this interesting quote that I feel will help us to reorient ourselves and understand what sin is. John Piper said this, All sin is a despising of God before it is a damage to man. All sin is a preference for the fleeting pleasures of the world over the everlasting joy of God's fellowship. When we look at sin, we focus on either ourselves or others. What we're doing is we're looking at the secondary action of sin. Sin primarily is an action against God. Sin is sin. It doesn't matter what the sin is. It doesn't matter if it is this horrific sin that you have labeled as a horrific sin or something that you have labeled as small. It is an action against God. It is something that he cannot ignore because sin is basically an outright declaration of rebellion, an outright declaration of war against God. He has to address it. He cannot ignore it. His very nature of righteousness will not allow him to. Which makes it very weird to read verse 25. Because in verse 25, it says that God, in his patience, in his forbearance, left sins unpunished. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. There's a problem there. There's a huge problem. How can a righteous and holy God forgive? They actually conflict each other. Something had to happen because if we were to enter into a courtroom and if we were to sit down in front of the whole courtroom scene, and we begin to watch the arguments. We watch the arguments being presented. And the defendant is 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt guilty. We hear all of the evidence. We begin to hear all of it. And there is not even a question. This person is guilty. If we hear this overwhelming presentation of arguments that says that this person is guilty, how would we feel when the judge slams his gavel and says, not guilty? Not guilty. That wouldn't be right. In fact, it would be wrong. A judge who pronounces the guilty innocent is in fact guilty. He is the wrong. And yet God, in his patience, left sins unpunished. God's options are limited when it comes to his righteousness in our sin. God can punish the entirety of humanity and send them all to hell. That is not only his right, it is what is right. But he chooses not to do that. He has to do something else. You see, you have to understand the depth of the bad news before you can understand the depth of the good news. God's very nature demands that sin be addressed, and the only response that a holy God can have towards sin is wrath. And the response is devastating. God's very righteousness is at stake. He cannot ignore this. And because of God's righteousness and sin needing to be addressed, the only proper response from a holy God is wrath. 
There needs to be a recipient of that wrath. Because of God's righteousness, sin has to be addressed, and that has to be wrath. That is the only proper response. Because of that, there needs to be a recipient of that wrath. But God's love is so deep. God's love is so deep. That instead of choosing to pour out his wrath on us, he provides the recipient. He provides the recipient. And in order to fully understand that, we need to kind of step back a little bit and step back towards the Jewish customs, the ancient customs before Jesus. And what was happening during those times is that when there was sin, a sacrifice would be made. An animal would be sacrificed. The life of an innocent lamb or the life of an innocent animal was sacrificed. And then that's kind of foreign to us. And if, you, if you've never read the Bible, you're kind of like, that's weird. What am I doing here? Because honestly, if you were to go to Souderton, like if you were just go to Main Street Souderton, you're not going to really find anyone having their stands for lambs to be sacrificed, right? We're not going to find that in downtown Quakertown. We're not going to go over there and, and find, like, sacrifices are us. It's not going to happen. It's weird. It's, it's kind of countercultural to us right now. We don't understand it. And because it's weird and because we don't understand it, sometimes we have the tendency to kind of dismiss it or reject it because it doesn't really relate to us. And so what I want to do is I want you to just kind of put aside the weirdness, put aside, like, what you just can't, understand about that because it's not part of your culture because we're not going to talk about all of the actions or how it happened today even though I think that's a good study we'll do that a different day today we're going to only talk about what happens I want to talk about the transaction that occurs in the sacrifice I want to talk about what occurs with the offering you see the sacrifice provided atonement 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 is another church word. Atonement is a word that you should be familiar with because it's important, but it's a word that we don't really use in normal language. And so it's a church word, but I want you to understand what atonement is. When you boil down atonement, it's the process by which a reparation for a wrong is made. It's the process by which making amends occurs or something is repaired, something is broken, something is screwed up, and atonement provides the process of reparation. It repairs that. And what is broken in this instance, what is screwed up in this instance, is our relationship with God, our righteousness. And so God recognizes that there is a need for that to be repaired. There needs to be a restoration of righteousness. Atonement is necessary in order for us to be made right with God. And in the Old Testament, the times before Jesus, what, that, what happened was that those sacrifices were the ways for atonement. But that method of atonement was incomplete and it was temporary. There was a need for a greater atonement. And the pinnacle of the story is when God presents Jesus, when God presents Christ, as the ultimate atonement, the ultimate source of atonement. In that presentation, Jesus is made the recipient of the wrath of God. 
Jesus is made the recipient of the wrath of God. So here's the progression. It is God himself who in his holy wrath needs to be appeased. It is God himself in his holy love who provides the source of that appeasement. And it is God himself in his son Jesus Christ who does the appeasing work. God in his complete love satisfies his own righteous anger. By directing that anger to himself. God satisfies his wrath by directing that wrath to himself when Jesus died for us. Do we understand how intense that is? Do we understand how intense that love is? And that love is mind-boggling. I don't think we can even comprehend that for a little bit. We just get a glimpse of it in our finite minds. Do we understand how ridiculously huge that kind of love is? That a righteous God who had the right to pour out wrath on all of humanity instead chooses to make himself, his son, the recipient of that wrath. That's intense. That's crazy. It's astounding. Because of God's righteousness, he had to address sin. And the only response to sin for a holy God is wrath. But he provides a recipient for that wrath in his son, Jesus. And because of that, we are able to be made right through faith in Jesus because of that perfect love. And because of that love, there is a need for a response. A response. Before we talk about what our response should be, let's talk about what our response should not be. Because Paul addresses it. Paul tells us right up front, there can be no boasting. There can be no boasting. Why? Because it's not you who made things right. It's Jesus. There can be no boasting. Again, if we were to go back to the Jewish law, back to the Jewish traditions, the law stated that in order to make yourself right, you had to keep the law completely. And so in essence, what it's saying is no one can make themselves right. Because no one can satisfy the law completely. We are born, born screwed up. We are born with a sinful nature. The law and our attempts to satisfy the law simply points out that we cannot. The law shows us our sin. And it makes us aware of our shortcoming. We cannot justify ourselves by works. We can only justify ourselves through faith in Jesus. And, and the problem is, the problem is this, is that I sometimes live mentally understanding, mentally agreeing to justification by faith, but I live out by justification by works. And this comes in two ways. It comes expressed in two different ways. And the first way is this. 
I begin to assign worth towards others, and I begin to compare myself towards others, and I begin to puff out my chest, and I say, at least I'm not like that person. At least I look a little bit better than that person. At least I have it together compared to that person. I don't do that. I do this, blah, 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 and I begin to play this comparison game as I look at others, and I boast as I puff out my chest with pride, and look at me. How foolish is that? Are you kidding me? Any sermon I have preached, any good deed I have done, any counseling to someone, any hospital visit, any time reading the Bible, any time singing songs in church, any of that is filthy trash in the face of a holy God. How dare I puff out my chest and boast? What is that about? I have no right to boast. But here's where it's more tragic than that. Here's where it's more tragic. You see, I said it takes on two paths. The first way is that I assign incorrect worth to others. But the truth of the matter is that I assign incorrect worth to myself. Not the way that you're thinking, though. Because here's what I've learned in life. Most pride is actually an expression of insecurity. If I choose to puff out my chest and boast about my works, then I must also understand that it is only my works that I'm relying on to get myself right with God. And how do I ever know if it's enough? How do I ever know if I'm right with God, if I'm basing it off of my own actions, because in a moment it could go away with just one slip-up. Justification by works is a life of insecurity. Justification by faith is a life filled with freedom. Justification by faith is a life released from insecurity and secure in our love with, by God, not because of anything we've done, but because of Jesus. And it is amazing to watch. This week, I, uh, this week I had to do something that was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. You see, there's a woman that's part of our Quakertown family, our Quakertown campus, who is one of the most amazing women I've ever met. Her heart is one of gold. She has sacrificed for others. She has loved others. She has made an impact on my life personally. She has made an impact on my wife's, my wife's life person, uh, in a personal way. And I have seen how she has impacted countless people. And this week, I had to go visit her to say goodbye. The doctors say there's only a few days left in her battle with cancer. And as I sat there listening to her, 
my heart began to break as she began to just say, I just would like some more time for the regular reasons of just wanting to be with her family, just wanting to be with her friends, just wanting to have just that little bit more time. But what broke my heart is when she said, I need more time because I'm not sure that I've finished well. I need to do more for God. I haven't finished this race well. And it blew my mind because I'm like, of all the people that I know, she is one of the few that I could say be, is the poster child for finishing well. She has poured out her life for so many. And yet, in these last moments where she is in bed, she cannot go and do anything more. She wrestles with the fact of, is it enough? And trying to kind of find some sort of comfort, I said, well, what's your favorite Bible verse? Because that's what pastors do. We kind of say, well, what's your favorite Bible verse to kind of, you know, lighten the tension a little bit. Because I was expecting her to say something like, here's a verse about God's comfort. Here's a verse about God's love. Here's a verse about how God will never leave us. And that's what I thought she was going to say. And I was going to kind of turn the conversation towards that because I didn't know what to say. Because I thought it wasn't true. There's no way that's true, but I didn't know how to point that out. And so she pointed it out for me. She said to me, I don't have a favorite Bible verse. I have many. But I can tell you what is helping me right now. And she began to quote to me the verse that I read to you at the beginning of this message. She said, there is no one righteous, not even one. And I'm like, didn't see that one coming. Because that doesn't make sense. That's, I told you that was the bad news. That was the bad news, right? And as she began to talk, what I realized was there was freedom in her understanding that there is no one righteous, not even her. Not even all of the work that she did, not even if God gave her a hundred more years, there was nothing she could do to make herself righteous. And in that statement, in that truth, she found comfort because she could not cling to her own works. She could only cling to Jesus. The bad news made the good news so much more real. And as I talked to her, what I began to realize and I shared with her is this. I said, God is smiling with a smile that is so big and he's looking at you filled with pride. And what I want you to understand is that God is not looking at you with a smile filled with pride because of anything you have done. He's looking at you with a smile filled with pride because you're his. You're his. And when he looks at you, what he says is this. That's my girl. That's my girl. God's love is not based on our works. It is based only on faith in Jesus. And the result of justification by faith is a deep awareness of that love by God. And it is a love that is relentless and secure. And so what is our response? If it is not to be boasting, our response is this, to worship. To worship. Worship is seeing God for who he is and responding appropriately.
When we see the righteousness of God and see how his only response to sin as a righteous God is to have wrath towards sin. When we see that because of his deep love, he sent Jesus to be the recipient of that wrath. When we see that all of our works do not add up to righteousness, we are only made right with God through faith in Jesus. When we see this incredible, deep, and relentless love, our only response is to stand in the presence of this all-powerful, all-loving, unstoppable God and worship. We worship through obedience, we worship through our praise, we worship by continuing what Jesus started, we worship with our very lives. We see God for who he is and we respond appropriately. And here's what you need to understand. We do those things not as a requirement for God's love. We do them as a response. We do them as a response. And so if you're here and you have never responded to that love, I encourage you to go ahead and do so. God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. If you're in Quakertown, you're sitting there and you've never responded to that love, God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. Stop trying to add up your works, the good and the bad, and understand that it is only through Jesus that you are made righteous and accept that gift. And if you are here and you have responded to that love, Here's the one thing I want you to cling to. God's not proud of you because of the work you have done. God's proud of you because you're his. And when he looks at you, what he says is this. There's my boy. There's my girl. There's my child. Let's pray.